Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist News Flash with me, Ben Valsler. I'll be bringing you the latest science news along with Chris Smith and David Fisher. Coming up, salt-tolerant crops edge ever closer with a new genetic modification technique. We've given these plants concentrations of sodium which would normally kill them and these salt-tolerant plants are still growing just fine, which is quite exciting. The unique developmental trick that gives turtles and tortoises their shells... What they find is that it's actually a very clever turtle-specific trick that goes on during development. The upper ribs where the shoulder blade is, in fact, grow out a bit, and then this very clever folding happens whereby that bit of the embryo folds in on itself, going inside, and then the ribs grow over the top. And Darwin meets hip-hop with Barbara Brinkman's Rap Guide to Evolution. And how do human beings ever learn to do anything like this? Performance, feedback, revision. And evolution is kind of just an algorithm, isn't it, that goes like this. Performance, feedback, revision. So really the genetic code of every living thing was written like this. Performance, feedback, revision. Plus, Sarah Castor-Perry takes us back to this week in science history, which saw Alfred Nobel first demonstrate dynamite in 1867. That's all on the way. This week, scientists in Australia have made a major breakthrough in the field of crop sciences because they've managed to make plants that will tolerate saline-contaminated soil. Let me explain why this is important. According to Mark Tester, who's from Adelaide University and one of the scientists behind this breakthrough, about one-third of the world's crops are grown on soil that is irrigated and one-fifth of that irrigated soil is now significantly contaminated with salt. Where did it come from? Well, there's a number of sources. One is that when you pump river water onto land, because the river water has come from water that has permeated through the ground and through rocks, it contains trace amounts of dissolved salts. When you put that water onto the ground, that water evaporates because of heat from the sun. It's also taken up into plants, and the plants then transpire the water into the atmosphere, and this leaves the salt behind. So over many, many generations of plant growing, what happens is that you get a progressive and significant accumulation of salt in the soil, which eventually becomes sufficient to poison plants. The reason it poisons plants is that the salt concentrates in the shoots and the new leaves of plants, and it causes them to age prematurely, and so they just don't grow. They have to spend all of their energy making new leaves and tissues rather than making new growth or seeds and things we want to eat. So it's a big problem, and with the world population growing, in fact we'll hear more about that in just a second, it's going to become an even more acute problem, so we need a way to solve it. Also, with global warming and climate change on the way, we think that flooding and sea level rise could also put more agricultural land out of commission or contaminate the soil significantly. So what's the solution that Mark Tester's come up with? Well, what he and his team discovered is that when you grow plants in a salty environment, they have a means of getting salt out of the plant. It's a gene which is called HKT11. And what this gene does is it transports sodium out of cells because one of the major salts that's poisonous is sodium. The thing is, if you turn this gene on too much in a plant, then it kills the plant. And similarly, if you stop the gene working, it kills the plant. So what they wanted to know is, well, can we make this gene just work in the bit of the plant that determines what gets sent up the plant to the shoots? And they've discovered how to turn this gene on just in a selection of tissues which surround vessels called the xylem vessels. And these are the pipes or conduits that carry water from the root up into the leaves. And when they do this, 
This means that the cells filter effectively the salt out of the water coming in the root and going up the xylem, and they repel the salt and turf it out. And what Mark Tester and his team have found is that they can grow Arabidopsis, which is just a, a weed that basically plant scientists use because it's a convenient way to experiment. They can grow this on very saline soils. They don't actually know exactly how saline yet, but they have had some very promising results. Concentrations of sodium, which would normally kill them, and these salt-tolerant plants are still growing just fine, which is quite exciting. So we actually haven't worked out what, how high we need to go to actually kill these plants off. The, the experiments are surprisingly difficult because this, this is a little plant which is quite hard to, to grow in a controlled way. So they've obviously made a major breakthrough here if we can do this with Arabidopsis, but that's an experimental plant that we use a lot. We don't actually eat it. Can we do the same trick with something like rice or maize? According to Mark Tester, yes. I asked him about that, and he says that they've managed to make the trick work in rice plants, and rice is the staple food crop for a significant proportion of the human population, so that's a major breakthrough. Um, the big question about cereal crops, though, is they apparently are a little bit more genetically complicated than rice and uh, the thalecress, Arabidopsis is. So it's taken them a little bit longer to get that to work, but Mark says they now have experimental crops that they're testing, so in a year's time they'll know if it's actually working in them. But the principle seems sound. It's just a question of getting the right DNA construct to turn on the gene in the right class of cell so that the effect will work. But certainly all, all reasons to be encouraged. Excellent. Well, it's good to see that uh, genetic modification might help to feed the world one day, especially with a growing population. Now, this is quite horrifying, but every single minute a woman dies from pregnancy-related causes somewhere in the world. Every single minute. And that statement came from the Population Institute in Washington, and they made it to highlight World Population Day, which is actually being held by the United Nations Population Fund this week. Global population is growing at a phenomenal rate. It actually took all of human history up until 1830 for world population to reach 1 billion. The second billion was reached in merely 100 years. The third billion in 30 years. The fourth billion in 15. The fifth billion in 12 years. In fact, population is predicted to exceed 9 billion people by 2050. And we're made very aware of the threats of a changing climate. We've heard about how rising sea levels could force millions out of their homes, it could threaten food security and increase conflict. And rising population actually only makes all of these effects worse. Larger populations need more land for crops. This reduces forest cover, which decreases biodiversity and cuts out ecosystem services like pollination and pest control and so on. And all in all, growing populations make these things worse. Even things like poverty, HIV, AIDS, childhood illness, access to drinking water and the effectiveness of vaccination programs are all made worse by overpopulation. So World Population Day is hoping to raise awareness of all of these issues, especially to governments who are considering ways to save money in the current financial climate. There's no quick fix, and they certainly acknowledge that, but an awareness of the problems and the opportunities can help us and our governments to make the right decisions. If we invest more in women's education, family planning, public health and other social services, this will make a difference and this shouldn't be allowed to suffer because of the current financial crisis. Already developing nations are feeling the consequences. For example, the credit crunch has affected HIV AIDS funding in Africa. 90% of family planning in Uganda relies on overseas funding and fully half of all the healthcare funding in Africa comes from sources in America. So what they're trying to say is that we really cannot let a financial crisis in the risk in the in the west become a humanitarian crisis in the developing world. 
It's also storing up trouble for the future, isn't it? They're, they're making the point this is going to be a false economy because if we don't carry on with the investment, uh, as you say, what will end up happening is there will be an even bigger population problem later, which, which we will have to pay for, directly or indirectly. So it's therefore a much smaller cost now, despite the, the world economic situation, to invest and solve the problem now rather than let it fester when it will become a much bigger one. Exactly. Yes, certainly by 2050, 9 billion people, if we haven't fixed some of these problems or at least gone part of the way, then they're going to be so much bigger by then that really it's going to be a very, very difficult job to fix. Now, scientists have also published a paper this week in the journal Science. This is uh, Shigeru Kuratani, who I met, actually. He's been in Cambridge this week for the Darwin Festival, which was a celebration of Charles Darwin's contribution to the world of science. He's normally based at the Riken Centre, which is the Centre for Developmental Biology in Japan. And what he and his colleagues have done is to try and suss out how turtles got their shells. Not just turtles, but animals like them, things like tortoises too. It's an important question because at the moment it's very speculative. We think that what happened is that they evolved to use their rib cage in order to fuse the tissue between the ribs and form these hard bony plates which are their shell. There's a big question though, which is if I ask you, Ben, where is your shoulder blade on each side? It's uh, outside my ribs, right on my back at the top. Where's a turtle's sh- shoulder blade? Um... I guess it must be inside yeah. the if ribs. You look in the sh- if you look in turtles, you look in tortoises. In fact, Japanese scientists don't discriminate between those two. They have one word, kami, which means both turtle and tortoise. Um, but the, the shoulder blades are on the inside. So how do they get like that? Because other animals which have a close relationship, genetically and evolutionarily speaking, to turtles, like birds, they have their shoulder blades in the right place, like us, on the back, outside the ribcage. So how does this happen? Well, they wanted to solve this problem. So they did a very elegant series of experiments where they took eggs and they compared the developing embryos inside eggs of chickens because they're obviously birds Mm -hmm. they compared a soft-shelled turtle right and they also looked at mice because mice are obviously mammalian lineage and they're a useful comparator what they find is that it's actually a very clever turtle specific trick that goes on during development so you have the body plan being mapped out and normally what happens is you have your midline where the spinal column will form and the ribs grow outwards from that away from the center and then they curve round towards the front of the body and come round to the front where they will either unite with the sternum or some cartilage and they form a linkage at the front the shoulder blade is actually outside the rib cage and the ribs grow underneath it What they find in these turtles is that the upper ribs where the shoulder blade is, in fact, grow out a bit, and then this very clever folding happens whereby the shoulder blade folds, or the whole, that bit of the embryo, folds in on itself, going inside, and then the ribs grow over the top. And they don't know which genes are responsible for making this happen, but what's really intriguing is that when they compared a fossil which was dug up in China, it's uh, it's called Odontochelis, it was found in China, it's about 200 million years old, and this is believed to be one of the earliest common ancestors of turtles and other reptiles. This is a partially clad, it has a partial shell around the outside, and this, this ancient ancestor of turtles actually has its shoulder blades in a sort of intermediate position they're not quite all the way inside and they're not quite on the back either so this is viewed as a sort of uh, stepping stone evolutionarily speaking to what we see today so this very interesting discovery in eggs and developing embryos tells us how modern day turtles 
probably work based on this early evidence from the fossil record. That's really fascinating. I can see as well how that would fit into a Darwin festival, of course, if we're looking at how an animal, a really interesting and, and frankly quite confusing animal like a turtle or a tortoise has actually evolved. That's really, really cool. OK, also this week, the shape of blood vessels may affect how effective statins are at preventing heart disease. That's according to new research published in the Journal of Biological Chemistry this week. Now, statins, as many of you probably know, lower levels of low-density lipoprotein, or LDL cholesterol, that's found in the plasma of our blood. And by doing that, it helps to prevent the fatty build-ups that lead to blocked arteries and heart disease. Statins are very widely prescribed to people with a high risk of heart attack. And it's estimated, the NHS have estimated that statins have saved nearly 10,000 lives every year. Now, this research from a team at Imperial College London is the first to show that biomechanical forces actually affect how well statins will perform. One of the reasons statins are thought to help is by releasing antioxidants through boosting levels of an enzyme called heme oxygenase 1, or HO1, which is a bit easier to say, and that's created by the endothelial cells that line the inside of our arteries. So by measuring the levels of HO1 in different parts of the circulatory system, Dr Justin Mason and his colleagues were able to ascertain how useful statins are under different conditions. And they found that the increase in HO1 was significantly higher in cells that are exposed to fast, regular blood flow compared to areas where the blood flow was sluggish. So this means that where blood vessels branch or they twist around a lot, then the flow is disrupted there and statins show fewer beneficial effects. Now, unfortunately, arteries don't clog up in a uniform way and are actually more likely to develop these fatty deposits in the areas where the blood moves most sluggishly, exactly where the statins actually have the work less effect. well. So it's a bit of a double whammy, isn't it's, it? That's exactly how Dr. Mason described it, actually. It's, other research has shown before that the cells lining our arteries can sort of sense the sheer stress exerted by passing blood, in particular where it changes direction, and that alters their ability to keep the artery healthy. So they now intend to work with fluid engineers to discover how to get the best from statins because they show a lot of promise already. But really, we need to work out what's going on, why these twisty bits of arteries aren't as good, why the statins don't work as well there, and try and get the full beneficial effect of it, regardless of the rate and smoothness of blood flow. We already know that statins are safe and effective drugs, so this research could expose a way to save even more lives. Uh, They also say that they should be in the drinking water because everyone over the age of about 45 probably can benefit from them. I think that's the evidence at the moment. Crikey. Maybe I should go and get some. (laughs) Thanks for that, Ben. Now, this week was also Cambridge University's Darwin Festival. We alluded to it briefly earlier. What actually happened was that we've had a full week of events which have been designed to celebrate the 200th birthday of Charles Darwin, who was actually a Cambridge University student. Also, it's 150 years since he published arguably one of the most famous books of all time, The Origin of Species, which effectively rewrote our understanding of the world of biology around us. But one event that took place as part of the festival and really leapt out was when a Canadian hip-hop artist, he's actually an erstwhile medieval uh, historian, his name's Bubba Brinkman, unveiled his answer to Darwin, which is his rap guide to evolution. And he spoke to David Fisher all about it. The week here at Cambridge has seen mostly older, scholarly types in panel discussions or alone at the lectern analysing, speculating, debating and theorising over every nuance of Charlie Darwin's existence. So for a summary of the week, here's rap artist Barbara Brinkman who covers every angle of every session in his hip-hop show The Rap Guide to Evolution. 
what you know about natural selection. Go ahead and ask a question and see where the answer gets you. Try being passive-aggressive or try smashing heads in and see which tactic brings your plans to fruition. And if you have an explanation of mine, then you're wasting your time because the best watchmaker is blind. It takes a certain base kind of impatient mind to explain away nature with intelligent design. But the truth shall set you free from those useless superstitious beliefs in a literal Adam and Eve and that Edenic myth because their family tree is showing some genetic drift. Take it from this bald-headed non-celibate monk with the lyrical equivalent of an elephant's trunk. It's time to elevate your mind state and celebrate your kinship with the primates. The weak and the strong. Who got it going on? We lived in the dark for so long. The weak and the strong. Darwin got it going on. Creationism is dead wrong. Tell him, Dawkins. This Canadian rapper is no scientist. His area is medieval literature. After applying rap to the Canterbury Tales, he was approached by a microbial genomist who asked if he could do for Darwin what he did for Chaucer. Barbara read his way through a pile of books on evolutionary biology and outspawned his Darwin show covering every aspect of the great man's work. And according to Barber, there's a curious similarity between the creation, sorry, the growth, the evolution of an artistic work and any living thing. When I first started writing this show back in January, early drafts of the script sounded a little bit like this. Yo, yo. The origin of species ain't no feces, dog. <laughs> Believe me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then and that was all I could think of. And then I thought, <laughs> I thought, well, <clears throat> maybe my show needs to get rewritten. And sometimes people ask me, how does your show get written? Like this, performance, feedback, revision. And how do I generally develop my lyricism? Kind of like this, performance, feedback, revision. And how do human beings ever learn to do anything? Like this, performance, feedback, revision. And evolution is kind of just an algorithm, isn't it? That goes like this, performance, feedback, revision. So really, the genetic code of every living thing was written like this, performance, feedback, revision. See, the genes are like a text with a thousand pages, and revisions occur in the random changes that come from mutations. And then when they That's rap artist light, Bubba Brinkman from Canada, who is over here in Cambridge, touring with his rap, effectively Darwin set to a rap tune. He was talking to David Fisher, who is an honorary member of the Naked Scientist for a week, but you'll normally find him at the ABC at Radio National in Sydney, Australia. And we've actually got a recording of that entire show and we're going to be publishing it for you as a special podcast on our website later this week. So if you check out thenakedscientist.com forward slash podcasts, then you should be able to listen to all of Bubba Brinkman's show. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Now, Sarah Custer Perry looks back to 1867 and the first public demonstration of dynamite, the explosive that made Alfred Nobel wealthy enough to establish the Nobel Prizes. This week in science history saw in 1867 Alfred Nobel first demonstrate dynamite in the UK at Merstham Quarry in Surrey. Nobel had invented dynamite two years earlier and this demonstration was the first step towards a lucrative UK patent for the substance. Most people would recognise the name Alfred Nobel from the prestigious Nobel Prizes, but his work on dynamite and later forms of explosives was what allowed him to build up the huge fortune that he left in his will to set the Nobel Prizes up. There are five prizes, first awarded in 1901 
and which have been awarded annually except for three years during the Second World War for eminence in chemistry, physics, medicine or physiology, literature and for rendering services to international fraternity and peacekeeping. Before Nobel's work, the main explosives in use were gunpowder and nitroglycerin. Gunpowder was discovered by Taoist monks in China in the 9th century AD and is a mixture of sulphur, charcoal and potassium nitrate. It was used as a propellant for firearm weapons, rifles, pistols and cannons and so on, and it was also used as an explosive for mining and tunnel excavation, or to try and blow up a building, such as in the 1605 gunpowder plot to blow up the Houses of Parliament in London. The main difference between gunpowder and dynamite is that gunpowder deflagrates, whereas dynamite detonates. This basically means that gunpowder, a low explosive, burns, and dynamite, a high explosive, explodes. Gunpowder will produce enough force to push a bullet out of the barrel of a gun, but not enough to explode the gun barrel itself. Nitroglycerin was first synthesised in Italy in 1847 by nitrating glycerol. It was seen as a usable and much more powerful alternative to gunpowder. However, it is extremely dangerous. It is highly shock-sensitive, meaning a physical shock will cause it to explode. Alfred Nobel's own brother, Emile, was killed in a nitroglycerin factory explosion, and this was one of the factors that made him set about finding a way to make the transport and use of nitroglycerin safer, whilst maintaining its powerful explosive properties. Nobel discovered that mixing nitroglycerin with an absorbent substance like diatomaceous earth, which is a sort of sedimentary sand, or sawdust, and a small amount of sodium carbonate made it much more stable and safe to transport, but still delivered the high explosive power of the nitroglycerin compared to gunpowder. The mixture was formed into sticks and wrapped in paper, an image well known to anyone who's seen a spaghetti western film. It requires a small explosion from a blasting cap to initiate the explosion of the dynamite. Nobel used a pyrotechnic one using flammable chemicals, but modern blasting caps may also set off explosions using electric charges. Originally, Nobel marketed dynamite as Nobel's blasting powder, and over the next few decades he expanded his operations, and with his patents in several countries and shares in most dynamite or similar producing companies, he grew extremely wealthy. Later developments that Nobel made included gelignite, or blasting gelatin, that he invented in 1875, made by dissolving nitrocellulose, itself highly explosive, in nitroglycerin and mixing it with wood pulp and sodium nitrate. This and innovations such as cordite, invented by two Britons, were safer than dynamite, in that they did not have the alarming habit of leaking nitroglycerin when they were stored for too long, and had more explosive power, as the nitrocellulose used to stabilise the nitroglycerin was also a high explosive, unlike the stabilisers in dynamite. Blasting gelatin was widely used in Ireland during the War of Independence, and into the 1960s by the IRA, before it was replaced by modern plastic explosives such as Semtex. Dynamite is still in use today, although with a slightly different composition to Nobel's original mixture. Other forms of explosives such as Semtex and C4 are also used in demolitions, commercial blasting and for military use. It is said that the reason Nobel left such a large amount of his fortune to set up the Nobel Prizes is because he wanted a better lasting legacy than the invention of something that although helped global industry to grow and thrive, also presented a way of killing more people faster than ever before. Given that most people know his name in relation to the prizes rather than dynamite, and that the prizes helped to recognise and publicise global academic achievement, he seems to have succeeded in his wish. 
That was Sarah Castor-Perry looking back at this week in science history. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which featured Chris Smith, David Fisher, Sarah Castor-Perry and the hip-hop artist Barbara Brinkman. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the Newsflash, then please check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your science questions and a kitchen science experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.